Welcome to the Pitt Rivers Museum. My name's Andy McClellan, and along with my colleague Kate White, we're going to be talking about what this place is, what's here, and um, to some extent why it's here. And I'm Kate White, I'm Head of Access and Public Relations here, and my job here is really to uh, look after people who come to the museum um, and make sure they enjoy their visit and understand what they enjoy in order that we can improve what we can offer to people. Um, so understanding what people make of the museum is absolutely central to my, my work. And myself as um, Head of Education, uh, means I deal with kind of formal groups coming through the museum, whether it's children or teenagers or families or whoever really. And um, a lot of it is about exploring all sorts of different aspects of this museum. Because if you look at this place, it's unusual. It's not what you expect. It's not what you expect in how it's organised. It's not what you expect in what you find here. It's a museum of everyday objects from around the world, but some very unusual everyday objects like totem poles and like bottles with witches in and lamps and baskets and pottery and magic and boats and almost anything you can think of. So do we know just how many objects there are in this building today? Well I think they're still counting aren't they? Yes. They seem to be they seem to be pushing them up something like something like 300,000 objects in the collections and possibly up to 100,000 visible objects on display and probably makes us the most displayed museum in the world, possibly, someone might disagree with that, but it's only one of the most displayed and you can find 350 objects in one cabinet. Um, I don't know how many there are in the cabinet we're standing in front of at the moment, which is lamps and lighting, but it's a rather typical one of what this museum is. And I think, um, for me, um, museums are a way of organising information. And when people come into museums, they expect information to be organised in a certain way. And as this is all objects made by man, in this, in this particular case made by man to make light, um, people expect museums to organise that information. And they expect them to, it to be organised, I guess, a bit like a history book, that it's organised by where things come from or how old they are. And we've done this, what is effectively a rather weird thing to do, which is organising things by how they use, putting stuff together if it's used to do the same job. And so standing here, what I can see is a number of cases, in fact, a maze of cases, with um, headings on top of them, which are pointing out that kind of, um, well, what we call typological display. So all the pots in one case, or uh, all the objects uh, to do with transport in another case. Um, what I mean, obviously, that seems quite unusual compared to many museums today. But what's the benefit of doing it that way? Um, I guess you wouldn't want every museum to be organised like that. But if you're going to organise information, then you're telling people to think in a certain kind of way. And we have to organise objects in a museum. Otherwise, there'd be a big pile of them in the middle of the museum. You wouldn't find any. They'd all get broken. Um, you have to organise things into cases. So when you make those decisions, you're kind of telling people how to think. And if every museum is telling people to think in the same way, then you've got the same message coming up again and again and again about how our world works. Okay, so we stood by the lamps and lighting case. So let's go through that and, and, and you can explain what it is we get from this specific case that makes that typological arrangement so important. Right. You could stand in front of a case in the Pit Rivers and say each case is an individual human problem. Human beings, more than any other animal, um, adapt to manipulate, we manipulate our environment 
to suit ourselves. So when it's cold, we make clothes. Um, when it's dark, we make light. We do all these things, which means that you find human beings in every possible environment, which is not the case for any other kind of animal. So you could say that each of these cases is, a, is how human beings have approached the major problems of life, making light, making fire, carrying things, killing each other, um, religion, magic, music. But actually, each of these cases is a whole load of different, um, different issues going on, different problems being solved. Originally, there was a thought that if you put all these objects together, you'd be able to see a kind of progression of civilization. You'd be able to see which societies were, getting, were doing it better and which societies weren't doing it better and which ones were going to kind of, how they were going to evolve from one into another. But actually, there's something really different going on here. You've got a whole range of um, issues affecting different people in different ways. For example, um, there's a beautiful, in the far corner away from me now, there's a beautiful parrotfish lantern from Japan. It's a parrotfish. It's been hollowed out. You put a candle in and make a beautiful diffused light in a Japanese house, presumably. I've never seen one in a Japanese house. Um, we don't make them in this country. And there's a good reason why we don't make them, because we don't have any parrotfish. Um, also, as well as the kind of materials available, and um, just behind me, there's some rather lovely obsidian knives. Obsidian is volcanic glass. Obsidian knives from Papua New Guinea. Um, across the Pacific, um, people traditionally have not made metal knives. Now, they don't make metal knives, not because they're any less civilized or more civilized than Europeans, but because you don't find iron ore on Pacific Islands. What you find is volcanic rocks, and obsidian makes incredibly sharp knives. Now, we don't have obsidian in this country, so we make metal knives that we have to sharpen on a regular basis. So different materials will lead to different solutions to problems. So you're really talking about co common problems, but different answers to those problems according to the environment that people come from and find, you know, the, the materials that are around them. Well, all of, all of, all of these objects are in some way dealing with the problem of making light, but they not, may not be dealing with the problem of making light for exactly the same reason. Um, there's English miner's lamp, there's a, an English miner's lamp in here. Um, one of the main problems with that is that if you go down into a mine and you come across some gas, that you're not going to blow yourself up. So it's a Davy lamp and it's a safety lamp, so the, um, the flame is uh, sealed from the environment. Um, I'm going to be cycling home on my bike tonight through Oxford, and it's um, going to be dark by the time I cycle home. The last thing I want is a candle-powered parrotfish on the front of my bike. Um, I want something that's going to give a directed beam onto the ground in front of me. And if you look around, there are some lanterns in here that will do that. There's also a rather wonderful um, embroiderer's um, light that um, is for a candle that you can kind of ratchet up at the side. So rather than lifting your hand up and down, um, you make the candle go up and down so that you can find a comfortable height at which to sew and adjust your light to suit that. So there's a lot of different mini problems around the issue of light that's going on in here. There's also issues over belief systems. Um, and it may be slightly less in this case, but certainly in others, um, about, uh, belief systems can just be what people find beautiful. And different cultures will find there's a lovely Delft Ware lantern just over here from the Netherlands. And um, certainly um, a lot of people look at that lantern and find it very beautiful. And we have traditionally in this country um, gone for, and, and Europe, gone for blue and white pottery. Of course, they do in, in China as well, which may be where that idea came from in the first place. Um, I, w I was going to ask about uh, the other kinds of problems human beings have, I mean, which are the, the non-practical ones about how people relate to one another or indeed what they believe in or what 
how they go about making their lives better, how, how we can tell what's going to happen tomorrow, will the sun rise. Um, one of my favourite cases, on, um, which I often go back to, is the divination case, which is one of the small and probably most overlooked cases in the museum, where there is an array of material from all around the world, Tibet, Burma, Nigeria and England, um, looking at um, how people can try to predict what will happen in order to make the, presumably, you know, to improve the quality of everyday life. Um, and it seems to me that a lot of the cases in this museum look at those kinds of problems as well. Yeah, they, I think those cases for visitors can throw up as many problems as solutions, especially when you start looking at divination. And there are a lot of magic and folk objects from all over the world in here. And anyone who spent any time in the Pit Rivers knows that those folk objects are often uh, things that really interest people, really grab hold of them. Why do you think those cases over there are the most popular? area of the museum today? Well, I think when you're thinking about the bean of invisibility or the bottle with a witch in it or um, the antelope horn that turns you into a cat or these things, it somehow gets our imagination going. It also makes us think about um, the kind of the other within our society and certainly a lot of people over the years have seen the Pit Rivers as a museum that that kind of that shows the other the um, you know the the untraditional side of human societies and, and often, to be fair, not necessarily in a positive way of thinking about it. But one of the things that really attracts people today is this kind of other within, which is British folk objects. And sometimes those I'm I'm not sure that using the Burmese divination is going to be a good way for me to explain it. But um, a lot of the British folk objects are an amazing way of looking at something that we barely understand or think we understand in certain ways and then reflecting on it using our understanding of ourselves as a way of understanding the rest of the world. So you look at the British folk objects, um, like the witch in a bottle, or the um, there's a lot of Oxford magic, you know, um, uh, cures for warts or all sorts of things like that. Um, and we use our understanding of that as a kind of um, jumping off point to then think about similar issues in relation to the objects from other countries and um, cultures that we understand much less. And it, it kind of humanises those other cultures in many ways, which may or may not have been why they were collected in the first place. And it's quite strange that these anthropologists who were um, going all around the world were also collecting British folk objects in the early 20th century. And I think there's a lot of reasons why they were collecting them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and give a, an overall view of why they were doing it. But certainly one of the things they were doing was to capture something that was being lost and to, um, by what they may have seen as the kind of march, the progress of time but to capture that stuff as a way of contextualising the other objects that are in the museum. I can see that it definitely does, you know, those objects seem more familiar to us. Um, and, and certainly if you read the label and it says it comes from Oxfordshire or Somerset, you, you have an immediate sort of, for us, a, a sort of affinity or, or fondness for it in that way. But of course that might mean that we assume all kinds of things about other objects that look similar, when in fact they might have very different origins or very different motivations behind them or different, different hopes and expectations from them, which we can only guess. And, yes, and we will. That will happen, definitely. People will look at objects in this museum and they will not fully understand them. And actually, no one can really understand the objects that are in here. Some of them are contemporary objects, but a lot of them are historical and the way they've been understood will have changed. A, a really good example of that is the witch in a bottle, which is 
clearly one of the most popular things. It was collected by a woman called Mrs. Murray, who was an Egyptologist. She would have loved to be remembered as an Egyptologist, but what she's largely remembered for here is the British folk objects that she um, collected, and it um, comes from Hove, just outside Sussex on the south coast, and it's a bottle that's said to contain a witch. Um, now, witch bottles immediately have a resonance for all of us. We think of, you know, Aladdin, or we think of the Witch and the Wizard of Oz, or we think of Harry Potter. You know, there's lots of different cultural things going on immediately in how we think about it. But we can also begin to look at what it might have meant. Now, we have almost no information about that bottle. So any anything we do to try and understand it has got to be using bits of evidence from elsewhere. But um, how someone looked at a witch bottle in Norfolk might well have been different than how someone looked at it in Surrey. And we have quite a few Norfolk witch bottles called Bellamines on display. And they're kind of protection against witchcraft. So you put um, bits of iron in it and human urine and hair, and then you bury them into the walls of houses. Very popular in uh, the kind of mid 18th to mid 19th century, I think. Put them under the hearth or um, in the wall of the house um, or under the doorstep, and it stops evil spirits getting into the house. Now, it may be that this witch bottle is actually one of those. I have picked it up. It doesn't feel like it has anything inside it. Um, it doesn't rattle. It doesn't, well, it doesn't shake it very hard. Um, but it doesn't feel like it does. So, and it doesn't look like a bellamine. The bellamines generally are earthenware, and they have a human face on them with a beard. Bellamine, apparently, in the, I think in the 18th century, was a, uh, a Roman cardinal who was very unpopular in this country. So this witch bottle was named after him, presumably some kind of insult. So a bottle like that could be that kind of thing, or it might be that um, Burford, just down the road in the Cotswolds, um, has a story about a, um, a very bad um, lord and lady of the village who, when they died, her spirit went screaming across Burford and everyone was really scared. So someone captured her spirit in a bottle, sealed it, and threw it into the windrush. And um, there's a saying in Burford that if you ever get a drought and the windrush dries out, then she will escape from the bottle. Now, it might not even have happened. Um, certainly, I'm not sure I believe that they could really capture someone's soul and put it in a, in a bottle. But there is a story there which may have some connection to this bottle. Or it might just be someone having Mrs. Murray on. It may not be a witch bottle. Oh, there's this collector from Oxford, you know, will tell us some story about a, about a witch and uh, hand this over. We just don't know. But what it does is it tells us about um, about a perceived past and allows visitors to start to reflect on that. So if you're, say, the, if I'm talking to, say, in maybe a 50s club or something, they're likely to remember folk stories from their youth in Oxford. And it brings these stories out. And there's a kind of sharing of those. Um, we have a slug on a thorn, which is a cure against warts. And um, I've had conversations with this, and people start saying, oh, yeah, but when I was a child, we had to get a bit of bacon and rub that onto water and then bury it in the garden. And then someone was saying, we didn't have to bury it in the garden. You had to throw it over the fence or, you know, and suddenly you've got all these, you've got this kind of moving idea of a, of a kind of partly shared past. Mm -hmm. And you go from that to then thinking, not necessarily of understanding all the other objects in here, but a kind of awareness that similar conversations might be possible about all of the objects in this museum and what they mean. You, you mentioned, um, to some extent, how objects have arrived or, or how they were found or collected, you know, collected from. How, do, how have most of the objects arrived here? Uh, you know, not the, not the English ones, but ones from elsewhere. <laughs> um, a lot of different ways. Um, 
there are objects here that have been collected in what you might call fair trade situations. So some of the Captain Cook collections could be looked at and are looked at in that way. And there are objects in here that undoubtedly are connected to some very sorry parts of British colonial history. Um, but the vast majority of objects in this museum have, are not at that kind of extreme end. The, I mean, one of the things you can say about this museum with its 100,000 visible objects is these are everyday objects, they're used objects. So very few of these are precious. Um, the Ashmolean on the other side of town might well be where you're going to see the great treasures of the world. This is the everyday objects. A lot of them have kind of gained importance over the years. But um, a good example actually is in the introduction case just behind us, there's a rather lovely Yoruba carving from West Africa. Um, it's of a district officer, and I would, I'm, I would guess, and I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that it's a fairly good um, caricature of him. He's sitting at his desk with his pen, he's got his pipe firmly clamped in his mouth with his pith helmet stuck on top of his head. Now, the, that guy probably spent a great deal of his life living in that community. He would have been um, a powerful person within that community, but he was a part of it. After 20 or 30 years, people living in those kind of colonial situations are in some ways no longer British, yet they're not African or Indian or wherever it is that they've ended up. They end up in some kind of between space, but they have real relationships with people. And I think that that um, Yoruba carving of that district officer was made with love, partly because it looks like a caricature of him, although it's also a kind of typical Yoruba carving, but mainly because it has, has keloids or scar marks on the cheeks. And it's almost impossible to imagine that he actually would have had local scar marks. So if the carver has added those, it's almost a way of saying, this guy is part of our, a part of our um, society. So why do you think that object was made in the first place? Do you think it was commissioned as a portrait? Or, or, or I suppose what I'm saying as well is, how much is the style of that object uh, uh, um, evidence of, of, of Yoruba uh, artistry and, and, and in, within their tradition? And how much of it is perhaps um, you know, a, a one-off that one might more think of in terms of Western art tradition? Well. We can compare it to other Yoruba carving to get an idea of what it looks like. And we have, as you know, a rather wonderful Yoruba carving of Queen Victoria, who has very short legs. Um, and it's, it also looks like a caricature. So that, that kind of suggests that um, Yoruba carving, the, the kind of style of Yoruba carving fits with a kind of European view of what, what cartooning might be. But one of the nice things about um, Victoria, which I also think was probably carved with a great deal of love, is that it was almost certainly taken from a painted portrait somewhere, which would have been a three-quarter length portrait. And as they didn't know whether she was a full-length queen or a three-quarter length queen from the painting, they kind of played it safe and made her three-quarters as she was in, in the painting. So you can kind of, you can see a similarity of style, which is, you know, must be picking up on um, how the Yoruba choose to carve. Whether it's, um, whether it was commissioned or whether it was given to this guy doesn't make that much difference over whether it was done with, um, in a friendly spirit because it still appears to have the scar marks to welcome this person or to say that this person's a part of that society. And you could commission you could commission it or give it to someone and not have those and it would kind of suggest a different personal relationship going on.